be read as a summary statement that projects forward because of a near identical verse at the end of the unit. And you might just turn over very briefly with me to see that verse, chapter 9 of Matthew's Gospel, at the end of this literary unit, verse 35, we read, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction. A near identical verse to chapter 423, the two are functioning as bookends to this first major unit portraying Jesus' ministry. And so Matthew here, chapter 4, is intending to show us something of what is to come. Now, that's not typically how you and I think of summaries. When I say that word, we tend to think of summations coming at the end. We summarize, we synthesize in a conclusion. We tend not to give all the information up front, but that's exactly what Matthew is doing here. So it's worth asking the question, why? Why is it that Matthew, in verse 23 of the fourth chapter, wants to tell us and signal to us what we're about to read? The answer, in short, as we've mentioned a number of times over the last few weeks, is that Matthew is not in the business of surprises. Matthew doesn't care to write a suspense-filled gospel. Quite the contrary. Matthew's design all the way through is to make this gospel plain, to make it accessible, to make sure that we can't miss the main point. The whole Bible works in this manner from Genesis to Revelation. The scriptures are profound, they are complex, there are issues in them that we can ponder our whole lives and never reach the bottom of. At the same time, the scriptures have been written in such a way that a child can access the pertinent truth. Matthew wants us to know who Jesus is. And so he tells us up front at the very beginning of the first teaching discourse of this man's ministry, here's what you're about to read. It's a summary statement in order to make sure that we are best positioned to respond rightly. Matthew wants us to have no excuses, but to be positioned so that we can respond to Jesus's ministry correctly. So our role this morning is to unpack as best we can this summary statement. Indeed, to unpack Verse 23, the summary statement, the nature of Jesus' ministry, and to consider the response, verses 24 and 25. There'll be our two headings this morning, the nature of Jesus' ministry, verse 23, and the response to that ministry, 24 and 25. In both cases, as we look at both the nature and the response, in both cases, we are exhorted to a faith-centered obedience. In both cases, we are exhorted to a Christ-embracing obedience. 
It is not a new lesson that Matthew is commending us to here, but one that we have found many times already in the gospel, and that is that we are to embrace Christ first and foremost, and not something else. There are at least two dangers that arise when we see Jesus' teaching and his works laid out for us in the gospel. There are at least two dangers. One is that we would affirm what Jesus says, and yet not embrace him. It is not hard to read the Sermon on the Mount and find good things in there that we like. The danger is that we would embrace his teaching and not embrace him. A second danger is that we would, in some manner, embrace Christ, and yet we wouldn't embrace him in the way that he demands to be embraced. We would see things we like about him and we would adhere to his teaching and his call to discipleship to some degree, in part, not in whole, liking certain things about Jesus, but not willing to submit our whole lives to all that he is. And so in both cases, as we look at these few verses here, the exhortation is towards an embracing of Christ above all things whatever are the implications. Beginning with the nature of his ministry, verse 23, Matthew tells us that Jesus is moving throughout Galilee and he is doing three things, teaching, proclaiming, and healing. Matthew gives us something of a threefold ministry, teaching, proclaiming, and healing. The teaching and the proclaiming I take to be near synonymous. There is not much value in trying to divide those and identify them as distinct aspects of Jesus' ministry. Rather, I understand that the teaching pertains to his time in the synagogues, opening up the Old Testament scriptures with the Jewish people, explaining to them and reasoning with them things of the kingdom, the proclaiming, perhaps, is more exhortatory. He's, he's out, he's calling people to repentance, and yet the content remains the same, namely the kingdom of God and the fact that he is the Messiah. So the, the substance, the essence of the teaching and the proclaiming would have been the same. So we can understand those two things as near synonymous, essentially the same part of his ministry, and then separate from that, Matthew identifies his healing ministry. So in summary form, Matthew says Jesus' ministry was one of words and of works. Jesus came speaking many words and doing many works. I want to think about the healing ministry in our second point today, so I don't intend to deal with it right now. But let's just ponder for a moment, a little bit more, that teaching ministry of Christ and consider what it would have looked like. Well, as I said, this summary statement introduces the Sermon on the Mount, the first of five teaching discourses in Matthew's gospel. Matthew, more than any other gospel writer, is intent on recording lengthy instruction from Christ. He gives us the Sermon on the Mount. He gives us instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples as he sent them out. 
He gives us instructions concerning the church. He gives us the Olivet Discourse as he projects forward and says what will come to pass. And then the last teaching discourse in Matthew's Gospel is a series of parables. Not in that order necessarily, but they are the five blocks of teaching. As we think about the most immediate one, the one that we'll begin studying two Sundays from now, the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon that first and foremost is addressed to his disciples. If you look at chapter 5, verse 1, we see when Jesus sat down, his disciples came to him. As his disciples came to him, Jesus opened his mouth and taught them. The sermon is first and foremost a sermon directed towards Jesus' disciples. Those who had received, as we thought about last week, the effectual call. They were now kingdom citizens. And so, if I can summarize the sermon, I would advocate that you think of it as a kingdom ethic. What's the Sermon on the Mount all about? Jesus is giving to his disciples a kingdom ethic. In light of the fact that you now belong to this kingdom, you have to think through how to live in response. Now that kingdom ethic is given in light of the reality that we are not yet there. It is still a fallen world with sin abounding all around us. And so as one author summarized and synthesized the sermon, it is kingdom living in a fallen world. That is what the sermon first and foremost is intended to give. And you'll know from your own study of the sermon just how holistic is Jesus' sermon. He speaks about what it is to be a citizen, that you are salt and light in the world. He talks about the fact that he came to fulfill the law and what that then means for their obedience to him. He speaks to the issue of anger in the heart, to lust in the heart, to the issue of divorce, of your words and oaths spoken, of retaliation against those who have wronged you, of the imperative to love your enemies. He speaks about your giving. He speaks about your prayer life. He speaks about the necessity of fasting, of laying up treasures in heaven, of not being anxious, of not judging others, of prayer to the Heavenly Father, of the golden rule. It is an all-encompassing sermon. As we will find out over the next few months, Jesus encompasses all of life in this world in light of the fact that you now belong to his kingdom. If that was the sum total of Jesus' ministry, it would be a deadly thing to not hear the call to repentance. If I was to say to you this morning, the sum total of Jesus' ministry is giving to you an ethic, that is arguably the most deadly sermon you will ever hear. If all we did was to parachute into Matthew's Gospel at chapter 5 and to say, this is how you ought to live, the sermon only ever works out in your heart condemnation before a holy God. The reason I say that is precisely the reason that we find the sermon given in chapter 5 of the Gospel and not chapter 1. There is a reason why Matthew did not open his gospel with Jesus' teaching on the mount to his disciples. 
Because if all you ever do is receive an ethic from Christ, instruction in terms of how you ought to live, you stand condemned. Your desire to obey the ethic, your striving to adhere to his words, only ever brings condemnation before God. He gives the sermon in chapter 5. There is a context. Context is key. As you read the Sermon on the Mount, you have to keep in view all that has been said from chapters 1 through 4, not least the very first thing Jesus preached, which is repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As you understand Jesus to be giving an ethic to his disciples, we must ever try to keep before us that this is not the means by which they are to earn God's favor. He does not give these instructions as a means by which they would render themselves accepted before a heavenly, holy Father. Rather, this sermon comes in its proper place after the disciples had turned away from their sin and embraced Christ as their Savior. Context is important. The sum total of Jesus' ministry is not merely his instruction of how to live now. I believe Matthew intends for us to understand that even in the summary statement he gives us at verse 23. Look again how Matthew describes Jesus' ministry, teaching, he says, in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now that is a unique term to Matthew. Every single gospel author has his own points of theological emphasis. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John agree entirely concerning the nature of the Lord Jesus. They would have no disagreements amongst amongst themselves as to who this man is, what he came to accomplish, what our response should be. They are theologically united. At the same time, every gospel author carried along by the Holy Spirit places his own point of emphasis on Jesus' ministry. So Mark, by way of example, is particularly burdened to highlight to us the suffering servant nature of Christ's earthly ministry. When you read through Mark's gospel, there are lots of allusions back to Isaiah. He wants to emphasize that this man came Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Mark's emphasis. Luke's emphasis is subtly different. He desires to show us the humanity of Christ, particularly that he comes as a second Adam. So Luke's emphasis is very universal, showing Jesus' emphasis to the nations as he stands as the head of a new creation. Jesus comes as the second Adam, Luke teaches us. And John's emphasis, again, is wonderfully different. John is concerned to show us that Jesus is indeed God. Now, again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke would not disagree with that. They were on board with the deity of Christ. But John makes a particular accent in his gospel. He shows us that this man, in fact, is God in the flesh. Matthew's emphasis, as I trust you know by now, is that Jesus is the king. 
If Mark shows us that Jesus is the suffering servant, Matthew says, and he is at the same time the wonderful, glorious, anticipated Messiah. He is the King. And so, as we get to Matthew's description of Jesus' teaching ministry, we find a term that is found nowhere else in the Gospels. Not found in Mark or Luke or John. Matthew alone says Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And that is so helpful for us to keep all of his teaching in view. What does it mean that he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom? It means, at least in part, that this man, this man Christ Jesus, comes with authority. He presents himself as the king to be obeyed, which means it is our burden to get all of our lives under all of his words. We strive to bring all that we are under all that he is. And that would include verse 17 of chapter 4, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We don't get to ignore the call on, his, on our lives to turn away from our sin, to disassociate ourselves from our sin, and to cast ourselves upon Christ. And it is so important to labor this point because we're so prone to do otherwise. In our sinful flesh, we are so prone to avoid submission to Jesus, repentance from sin, accepting in all humility that we have nowhere to go but fleeing to Christ. The inclinations of the flesh will compel us to do anything but cast ourselves upon Christ. Which is why when you speak to somebody who is not in Christ and you ask them the question, what do you make of the Lord Jesus? So often the answer is, I believe he was a good teacher. That tells you as much about their heart as it does about their perception of Christ. The heart does not want to submit to the Lordship of Christ. The heart sees it. The heart knows it. It is bound up in us to recognize who Jesus is. And yet in our flesh, we do not want to embrace that fact. And thus, a seemingly acceptable answer is to credit him with something, not the lordship. I'll credit him with being a good teacher. I have lost count of how many times I've spoken to somebody who is not a Christian and asked them, what do you make of this man? And the answer is, I do believe that he taught good things. You can read through the Sermon on the Mount and it is quite agreeable to most of humanity. Who would disagree with the golden rule? Who would disagree that we should not be angry in our hearts? The problem is, the Scriptures never present Jesus as only a good teacher. The Bible never gives us that option. Jesus is never presented anywhere in the Bible as merely a good teacher. Your answer to that question is one that has not been permitted. You're not given that as an option. You have to, as so many have said, either say that he was wicked 
A man who is seeking to deceive and, and work all kinds of evil. Or that he was mad, he had completely lost his mind. Or that he is exactly who he said he was. They are the only options available and the Bible commends you to embrace Jesus at face value and to accept him for who he says he is. I pray every Sunday that the Lord would bring his elect to us. God, you know who you have chosen from before the foundation of the world. So bring them. You know who you have chosen for salvation from before the foundation of the world. So would you, in your grace, bring them to us this morning? Would they hear the gospel? And in hearing, would today be the day of salvation? Would their ears hear in their hearts, their dead hearts, be quickened unto life? If you're here today, it's not an accident. God decreed that you would be here this morning. These verses are not merely summary verses. They're not verses that are incidental, but actually, as you properly consider Matthew's summary, projecting forward, telling us what is about to come so that we are best positioned to make the right response. As you think of these verses, you see that they form something of a pivot within the gospel narrative. They are an implicit exhortation for you to hit pause right now and consider what have you done with Jesus? If you have been with us every single week since we began, or you are just here for the first time today, either way, the verses are asking the same question of you to reflect upon your response to this man. Have you yet to acknowledge who he truly is? Have you in some way affirmed his teaching and yet not embraced him? Have you in some way stepped aside around the call to repentance and you find yourself living what seems to be a perfectly acceptable life and yet your sins are not yet forgiven. I pray that you would see the Lordship of Christ through his teaching and his preaching ministry and you would understand that before you can accept his ethic, you must embrace his lordship. Before you can submit to his teaching, you must repent of your sin and cast yourself upon the Savior. That's the nature of his ministry. We move now to look at the response that Matthew records for us in verse 24 and 25. And we see that his fame spread throughout the whole area. His fame spread so that they brought to him all of the sick, those with diseases and pains and seizures, the paralytics. 
Verse 25, great crowds followed him. There's a sense in which what Matthew is doing here is narrating for us, explaining to us how Jesus' ministry developed. He began emerging as an individual. He submitted himself to the baptism of John. And then very quickly afterwards, he began to preach and he called the first disciples. When Jesus did that, he would never be alone again all the way up until the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus will now constantly have people with him. He has this this inner circle of disciples around him all the time. And then in the next passage, our text today, we see how that inner circle gets built upon, augmented. Now there's a great crowd following him. So with Jesus at the center, the disciples come around him and now a great crowd. And and Matthew, in one sense, is simply explaining to us how we got to Jesus' ministry of many, many people around him. But there's more to it than that. This summary statement has many curious elements to it. Consider, first of all, the fact that Matthew says his fame spread. The people are coming to him on the basis of a report, on the basis of his fame. Meaning to his original readers exactly what it means to us. These people have come because he has risen in some strange way to the status of something of a celebrity. They are there not first and foremost because they have a personal relationship with this man, but because in some way he is now famous. Consider also the juxtaposition between the specificity of Christ's ministry. Matthew labors the details. He goes to great lengths to tell us of these various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, the paralytics. He's giving us in high definition the works of Jesus. And that sits out of balance with a lack of any mention of the names of those that came. Matthew simply labels them in a generic way as the great crowds. There's no names mentioned. We don't get to see their faces. They just blur in contrast to the sicknesses that they bring. And then thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, notice the asymmetry between verse 23 and 24 through 25. Matthew says Jesus' ministry was a threefold ministry. He was teaching, he was proclaiming, and he was healing Now, if the teaching and the proclaiming are of the same essence, the same substance, we have an emphasis on the words. Jesus was teaching and proclaiming. And he was healing. So Matthew is laboring this aspect of Jesus' ministry, and yet the response in verse 24 only highlights the healing. There is no recorded response 
hear to the words that Jesus spoke. It would seem that they are only coming for his healing ministry. This is what John in his gospel develops at length. The notion of many crowds seeing something they like about Jesus. Affirming something that they find pleasing about Christ. And yet, not quite affirming Christ. They're coming to Jesus because he has something good to give them. But they're not coming to Jesus because he is good. John develops this theme in his gospel at length. In John's gospel, there are growing crowds throughout the narrative. And he even goes so far as to say the crowds believed in the name of the Son of God. But we're told in the very next verse, yet Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. That's the same verb. We miss it in our English Bible. They believed in him. He did not believe in them. Or they entrusted themselves to him. He did not entrust himself to them. Meaning Jesus knew what kind of faith they had. And it was not the kind of faith that he was commanding. I refer to that crowd in John's gospel as the unbelieving believers. Or you can say the believing unbelievers. However you phrase it, the point is they are believing upon Jesus in a way that he is not demanding to be believed upon. He commands you to come to him because he is the Savior, the Son of God, and in Matthew's Gospel, very emphatically, the King. And he gives many good things. And we praise God for the good things that we receive from Christ. But that ultimately is not the reason for our faith in him, our allegiance to him. Jesus compels us to look at him and come to him because of his glory. Not because of some perceived benefit. I remember when I was an unbeliever having explored the claims of Christianity for Nearly a year, the night prior to my final exams in university, the thought occurred to me, I could pray tonight. I could tell God that I repent of my sin. I could tell him that I want to follow his son. And I could ask for a blessing. Our exams were such that there was no equity carried over. Our final exams, you had zero in the bank. Your previous year's exams, all they did was get you into your next year of school, and so everything rested on these finals. It was very conceivable that I would go in and fail those exams and not get a degree, and so I was terrified. And I knew enough about the Christian faith. I'd explored it for nearly a year. And, and I'd learned through experience what the Proverbs tell us, that the way of the transgressor is hard. I knew that. 
And so the thought came to me the night before these exams were about to begin. I thought I could just pray now. I could become a Christian tonight. And I knew that in being a Christian, I would have access to God. I could then, then I could pray and ask for a, a blessing. I knew enough to know that I had no part asking for a blessing from God if I was not in Christ. I knew I had no place in doing that. But I thought to myself, I could do that tonight and ask that God in some way, as a newborn believer, would get me through this week. And I didn't. I went to sleep and I sat those exams as an unbeliever and I'm grateful that I did. Because I fear that if I had prayed that night with the motives in my heart, that my religion would have been fake. I would have come to Jesus for the good that he gives and not because he is good. I would have come to Jesus because of some perceived benefit and not because I had a love for him. And it's important for us to think about the response of the crowds towards Jesus because so often that is our way. So often, even as believers, we can get wrapped up in all the good things that the Lord gives to us and lose sight of Christ as our ultimate good. We read from Isaiah earlier this morning. We read one portion of Isaiah that depicts the coming kingdom. As you look at the miracles of Jesus in the gospel, every single time we are to understand those miracles as a window into the coming kingdom. They validate his ministry. The miracles substantiate the claims that he is making. At the same time, they open up for us a window into the kingdom that is to come. So Jesus unstops the ears of the deaf and he opens the eyes of the blind. And that's exactly what Isaiah said will be the, the norm when the kingdom comes. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one that will bring that kingdom. The danger is that we focus on such glorious realities that we lose sight of Christ. That we are fixated on the good things that he gives us, the good things that are to come and that our hearts even start to worship those ideas more than they worship the king who brings them. What's fascinating about the sermon is that it begins directed to his disciples. Chapter 5, verse 1, this sermon begins given to his disciples. But you can't miss the fact that as you keep reading, it starts to become ever so more evangelistic. Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount by speaking of the two roads, the two paths that you can choose from. He talks about the tree and its fruit and it bearing bad fruit or good fruit. And then he says, there is a house that is built upon the rock that does not disappear in the flood. It's a very evangelistic ending to the sermon. And I think the most reasonable explanation as to why the sermon does that is because as Jesus was teaching his disciples a kingdom ethic, the crowd started to gather. 
they start to come, they hear this teaching and they want to hear more. And so they start to gather and Jesus, knowing that now he has a much greater crowd than which he began with, ends his sermon speaking to those who had not yet come into the kingdom and saying, you have a choice to make. This is the response that you have to make. After the sermon, there are a series of miracles. The teaching block of Jesus, five through nine, is his words, a sermon, and then a series of miracles. And it's curious to look at how Matthew has arranged those miracles so in, to teach us how we should think about the ministry of Christ. He records for us three miracles, and then three miracles, and then three miracles. There are nine in total towards the end of this first teaching block. Three, three, and three, interspersed between each set, is a call from Jesus to follow him. He gives three miracles, and then he says, let the dead bury their own dead. You need to follow me. He gives three more miracles, and then he acts, interacts with Matthew, the tax collector, and he says, follow me, and then three more miracles. So this summary statement here is intended again to project forward to inform us of what is coming. And we dare not fixate on his miracles to the extent that we lose sight of him. But rather we understand implicitly what Matthew is teaching us there as he gives us these miracles and then a call to follow Jesus. And then he gives us the miracles and then a call to follow Jesus. He is saying you cannot have access to these good things apart from Christ. And your discipleship needs to be centered on the person of Christ and not his works. You come to Jesus because you find him to be worthy. You find him to be glorious and you find him to be beautiful. Otherwise, you don't come to Jesus. If you come to Jesus on other terms, if your faith is wrapped up merely in the benefits that he gives and not an adoration of him, then the last words that Jesus speaks in the sermon are directed towards you. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and I will say to you, I never knew you. These summary verses. Show us In two weeks from today, Lord willing, we will begin our study in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 5 through 7, the greatest sermon ever preached, my guess is, will be there for some time. It is the first major teaching unit that Matthew records for us from the Lord Jesus. Matthew records five in total through his gospel. Matthew's gospel is very orderly in its presentation. There are five major teaching discourses from Jesus. And each teaching discourse is then followed up after by some works-based ministry of Christ. And so 5 through 7 is that first teaching block, the Sermon on the Mount, and it's followed in chapters 8 and 9 by some miracles that Jesus performs. Our text today is a summary of those chapters. 
As you look at verse 23 in particular, Matthew is synthesizing for us what we're about to read in chapters 5 through 9. We know that it is intended to be teaching and yet not embrace him. And as we see the response of the crowds coming because of his fame, seemingly having nothing of a personal relationship with him, we pray that you would forbid us to set our eyes on the good things that he gives and not on him. May our worship be founded in the Lord Jesus Christ as we enjoy all of his benefits, as we give you thanks for all of the benefits of salvation. May our worship be centered on him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.